Pastor Ben mentioned that uh, a couple teenagers up here, indeed there are, but there's also a couple of now adults up here who were up here as teenagers. <laughs> and of course I'm talking about Pastor Brent, yes, of course. But part of the role that we have here at Faith, by we I mean all of us, is one, instruction through didactic teaching, which is largely what you get on Sunday mornings. But then this this broad process of mentoring, of helping people in the daily practical godliness, fancy word for that is orthopraxy, living rightly before God, and then just being present to take younger ones, to visit with older ones, to learn from their experiences. The walk of following Christ is to be fully comprehensive. And again, to have been around here for so long that I have seen now people who were not even in existence when I came here. Think of that are not only now in existence, but they're up here, still in the process of mentoring. And I have to tell you that that precious song that Madison sang this morning during communion was her own composing. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's not where my heart was at when I was her age. Yeah. And probably not many of us. Testimony to good parenting, good mentoring through childhood, and of course, a great pastor. (laughs) Yay. Thanks, Mom. (laughs) Your voice sure changed. (laughs) From the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative word of God, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 says, Then Samuel took the flask of oil, he poured it on Saul's head, kissed him, and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? If we forget where we have already been in 1 Samuel, especially chapters 8 and 9 that we've looked at over the past couple of weeks, it's easy to really lose sight of the big picture here and how the details that Samuel tells us, actually the Lord tells us through his inspiration of what's going on here, that it's easy to kind of get confused as we go through this. And what I mean by that, just even in verse 1 out of the gate in 1 Samuel 10, is it's easy to get the idea that that God was fully behind, in every way, shape, and form, Saul's rising to the place of being king. In other words, it was God's initiative, and it was his privilege and his desire to see Saul anointed king. But if you've been around here for a few weeks, you realize that's not the case. And you'll hear that in a little more detail as we go along this morning. God, though, certainly was involved. And God, at a certain level, put his blessing on the coronation of Saul, even to the extent of orchestrating how this was all going to go down now once God decided, okay, Saul will be king. And what I mean by that is, you remember last week, okay, through the everyday, normal, routine, mundane of life, some donkeys go missing that belong to Saul's father, Kish. And Saul's father assigns 
him with going out with a servant and on this all-important task of finding the lost donkeys, because donkeys were currency. And yet, what we saw last week ever so clearly is it wasn't just coincidence, but it was actually by God's meticulous intervention in the affairs of men that through Saul going out and looking for these random donkeys, runs across the path of Samuel. That was God's initiative, making sure that he and Samuel would meet up, because Samuel, being the high priest, according to the policies of the day, was the one that would put his stamp, his divine stamp, if you will, on Saul as king. And so they had to meet up. And so through this this facade, if you will, of lost donkeys, God accomplishes that. I noted last week that Saul was more surprised than anyone that he would be selected for such an honor as being the king of Israel, especially being their first king, when in fact he did not have the pedigree that one thinks of when when we think about royalty. He didn't come from the right clan. He didn't have the right breeding. And from what we read last week, the servant that Saul's father told Saul to take along with them on the mission seemed to have a lot more put together in the way of common sense and leadership than even Saul himself had. But strangely enough, and it is intentional, all Saul really had going for him (laughs) was that he was handsome and that he was tall. So tall, in fact, that this comes up repeatedly, and so tall that he stood out from all the others being a good head taller than everyone else, according to what we were told in verse 2. And I will remind us of this detail, I hope, if I remember. I want to remember this particular detail about Saul when we get up to chapter 16 in this book, when Israel is now looking for the successor of Saul, because there's a common theme with God's people. And one of those themes is they don't learn real quickly. Well, God had warned his people 400 years earlier that appointing an earthly king for themselves wasn't going to work out the way they thought. But the Lord gives in to the will of the people, telling Samuel, the high priest, give them what they want. And as I've noted in past weeks, that's not usually good. And in any case, if you have been missing some of the connections that I've tried to make between the Old Testament precedents that we read about and applying it to our culture in our day, over the last 20 years, there has been a fundamental change in my opinion and observation, a fundamental change in the way Americans, even even we, select our leaders at the highest levels. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, God expressly ordained the concept, the whole idea of government. But he did so specifically to uphold equality and justice and virtue as defined by God, not as defined by man and by culture. Some of you are going to remember, because this is, I think, one of, the, one of the more famous quotes of modern history at any rate, came from John F. Kennedy. See if you can finish it. Ask not what your country can do for you. What's the next part? Ask what you can do for your country. Oh, how things have changed. 
As we read this text last week, it's easy to lose sight of the context of the bigger picture concerning, again, God's people's demand for wanting an earthly king. The language concerning Saul, which Samuel uses, could very easily, again, make us think that God was, in fact, all behind this and that God was pleased to see the coronation of Saul come about. But as I said earlier, with a bunch of caveats, yeah, God was behind it once he decided, okay, give them what they want. But this was not in the purview of God's, what's called his decretive will, meaning his will by decree or his ideal will. But this was only by virtue of his permissive will, meaning he knew it. He was okay with it in the sense of sometimes you got to do the hard things for the people you love, but he was behind it in that sense. And as Walter Kaiser would tell us often, he's my former Old Testament professor. We actually, I'd forgotten that we had brought him here one time many years ago, and he spoke here, and what a great privilege that was. Uh, my professor of Old Testament, and remember, because I, I repeated it oftentimes that I've been here, I said, Walter Kaiser used to tell us, keep your finger on the text. Meaning, if you lose sight of the context of what you're in, man, you can go any way and every which way. And I thought for some reason this past Wednesday as I was in this and I thought about that again, I thought, you know what? I wonder if old Dr. Kaiser's even alive. And so I went online and uh, sure enough, at least I had an email address for him at his farm in Wisconsin. And I thought, you know what? If he is alive, maybe he would get a kick out of hearing from one of his uh, old students. And so I wrote him and I said, and I told him about this. I said, you know, Dr. Kaiser, in our class, you used to say, keep your finger on the text. And I said, and that's something that I have used and reminded our congregation of over and over again. And as I was preparing my sermon this week, again, because of the intricacies of the passage, I reminded myself to keep my finger in the text. He wrote me a very gracious email back to my surprise and uh, he just said, you know, thank you for the encouragement. And uh, and I, I told him how much, you know, he the impact that he had on me. And I only had him for one class. Uh, but he was also the dean of the whole academic uh, foundation of the, of the seminary. And uh, so anyway, he told me how much he appreciated it. And likewise, how much uh, he appreciated how I had helped him and clarify so many of the deeper theological issues of the Old Testament. Why are you laughing? No, that really is a joke. That is totally a joke, okay? I went through seminary, right, like this. And occasionally I'd blink. Yeah, no, I'm totally kidding about that. (laughs) He's probably going, Bill Bill Cripe? Bill Cripe? I don't know any Bill Cripe. From 1 Samuel... Chapter 8, still reviewing, verses 11 through 17. This is called keeping your finger on the text. The Lord has told his people of the bad things that are going to result if, in fact, they go ahead with this knuckle-headed idea, which they were fully intent on because God knows all things at all times. And if they go ahead with it, he tells them, this isn't going to have the outcome that you guys are hoping for. And the conclusion of even God telling his people point blank, here's what's going to happen if you pursue this idea. The very next verse is, nevertheless, that's an important word in the context, because it means, despite the fact of I just told you categorically what is going to really come about from this bad idea of yours, in spite of that, 
even though God himself has told them plainly, the rest of the verse is, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, which wasn't the voice of Samuel. It was the voice of God using Samuel as his conduit speaking to them. And the people said, what? No, but there shall be a king over us. Now, there's a couple different levels. Actually, there's probably many. But I'll talk about only two levels of what I'll call practical lunacy. Okay? There's the, the, the low level of practical lunacy where, and all of us do this at one time or another, and sometimes more frequently than others, when we, we know that an idea is probably not a great idea, but we go ahead and we go for it anyway. And we were right. It wasn't a great idea. The fact that we convince ourselves that we're different, it'll be different for us, and the outcome will be different than it is for everybody else. It'll be different for me. Okay, that's one level of practical lunacy. But there's an altogether uh, different level, and that is when you have had a picture, so to speak, painted for you in, is it 4X Ultra HD that's like the highest high def today? On Okay, so I'm talking about just vibrant, you know, you can't miss the details and everything. When you have such a picture painted before you and you still run headlong through that counsel and wisdom of God, that's another level of practical lunacy that's hard to beat. And a number of years ago, sitting in my office on Rice Rips Road, much smaller than we were today, and a young lady who Barbara and I were particularly close to, she and her husband, they were about our children's age, and we had uh, even mentored them. They were part of our small group that we held out of our house, which was before this was a church of small groups. So they were hand-mentored by us. We had been with them through uh, a few different seasons of marital issues and all and took them through all those things. And one day, and things were, were looking up, we thought, and one day she shows up and sits in front of my desk and very calmly and very respectfully says, Pastor Bill, I've sat under your teaching for a long time. And I know exactly, and because I had actually even preached on it just very recently when she came in on Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is all about divorce and that sort of thing. And she says, I know, I know what you teach and what is right, but I want you to know that I'm in love with someone else and I'm going to divorce my husband. And she followed it up. And this shocked me more than, even more than that. And she said, and I know what you have to do. Referring to church discipline. And she didn't say it angry. She didn't say it, you know, arrogantly. Just, here it is. I understand. I know what I'm doing. But I'm going to do it anyway. Wow. That is a whole different level of practical lunacy. Most people who live life this way and make those kinds of choices, they are, in fact, happy. They are truly happy right until they're no longer happy. <laughs> and I cannot tell you how many times this has played out, unfortunately, in my years in ministry. And fortunately, though they are few and far between, along the way there are actually a few people who do get it 
and they do see it and they do understand. And in spite of what their own personal desires are, they go with the Lord's counsel and wisdom and they actually learn from their situation, meaning they don't repeat the same bad, sinful choices. But as I said, many more go through some emotional pretense of repentance until the same situation, meaning the same forbidden fruit presents itself, that same enticement. And once again, instead of feeling all down and out for whatever the situation is, now they start feeling alive again. And, and they even start, you know, joy starts coming back into their lives and they start feeling happy again. And then through that same pattern of self-talk, the same disastrous outcome comes about. Why are we so adept at maneuvering around the clear teaching and the loving wisdom of the one who made us? And every one of us do it. We all do it. And it isn't necessarily in those larger areas of sin that carry, you know, the, the, the most uh, awful, ugly, uh, lasting repercussions, especially on innocent bystanders, but I'm talking about in the littlest things of life as well. And the easy answer is, okay, well, it's because we have a sin nature. <laughs> yeah, and that's true. And we know that we are going to be battling that sin nature till the day that we are reclaimed by Christ and refashioned and renewed, where, whereby we hold perfection in reality rather than by faith. We know all of that. But it's still such an important issue. And again, even in the little things that the Apostle Paul admonishes us in regard to this in the New Testament. And in so doing, by his specific example that he brings up to the church of Galatia, not using some big extravagant sin, but by using one that is all too common, he wants us to get it as well. To the church of Galatians chapter 5 beginning in verse 15, this is what he writes. But if you bite and you devour one another, he's talking now, this is to the church. If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. I say rather, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, I said, this is a pretty small thing that he's talking about here. Because what he's talking about is simply one brother or one sister or both getting ticked off at each other. And instead of resolving it like Christ-filled, spirit-filled Christians, instead, they either fuel it and then they get people on their side and it fuels it even more until there is such a breach that they can't stand to even see each other. And yes, this has happened more times than I would like to even have been involved in in our precious little church here with people no longer coming to this church simply because they don't want to even chance running in to Brother Gumball or Sister Gumball. Borrowed that from Dr. Howard Hendricks. We've all been there, and maybe some of us are there. Come on, myself included. You're in Walmart, right? Okay, maybe. You're in Hannaford, right? And you come walking along, and you're like, all of a sudden, I need vitamins. Where are those vitamins again down in the thing? And you're kind of looking, where are they going to? I don't want to run into them, right? I don't know about any of our other pastors, but 
Yeah, I, I'll, I'll fess up to that. Happened, I think, twice in my life. <laughs> I wish. For all the excuses made in those kinds of situations as to why I cannot forgive him or her, it is blatant denial of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ and all that that means. We cannot come to this table, which again just happens coincidentally to fall on this particular message today. We can't come to this table each month with all that it means concerning our own wretchedness and yet we are embraced and welcomed into God's presence because he sees us through our perfect substitute and Savior Jesus. And all that his blood means has been talked about concerning our forgiveness and what our forgiveness cost him. And still we walk away refusing to forgive another brother or sister. One cannot possibly understand the depths of forgiveness of their own sinfulness against the Holy One while remaining unforgiving of another fellow sinner. It is a logical and spiritual contradiction. But oh, how masterfully we maneuver around the clear teaching and the counsel and the wisdom of our great God. And there is good reason why when I was a very young Christian, one of the very earliest verses that I committed to memory was Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful above all else and is desperately wicked. It's like, yeah. Yeah, Lord, I've only been a Christian a little while. I'm seeing how wicked my heart is. Man, and you love me? Yeah, not because of you, because of your substitute. It makes you fall in love with Jesus even more. Or should. And if it doesn't, you have to really take stock and take inventory of what your faith is all about and what it's in. And the rest of that says, I, the Lord... Search the heart, I test the mind, even to render to each one according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. We can deceive ourselves, and we do regularly. We can't hoodwink God. And God's not going to be ballyhooed. He's not going to be buffaloed. He's not going to be conned. He will know, and he does. And all we have to do is come to him with forgiveness and then see that forgiveness played out with our fellow sinners who aren't anywhere near what God is and yet he forgave us. So we convince ourselves that we are on the right side of God and then it seems like things are falling into place even. Again, that momentary payoff that sin brings. And that momentary payoff, again, the devil uses with our corrupt little hearts to convince us, affirming us that, see, see, what you did was right. See, God did want you to be happy. Look how happy you are with your new mate. And again, it all seems so great until it comes crashing down. And then what do we do? We truly do cry out to God to fix it. Or at least we ask, why? Why, God? Why is this all falling apart? <laughs> and you got to say, really? <laughs> and that's where we're at here in the book of First Samuel. It's 9th century B.C., which means before Christ. 
None of this BCE, before the common era, garbage. It is before Christ, B.C., and after his birth is Anno Domini, A.D. doesn't mean after death. It means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. God's people are about to get a new king, their first national king in the history of their existence. As I read now this narrative from 1 Samuel, really, you're going to get to it? I am. Think about last week's message concerning all that we talked about concerning God's sovereignty and the different levels of his sovereignty, meaning how he exercises that sovereignty and chooses to do very meticulously sometimes. And at other times, he just kind of seems to stand back and let things run their course. And all of that is within, under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. Because being sovereign, it means he can act very close, up close, personal, do miracles, work out the specifics, all of that. Or he can take his hands off. That is completely his prerogative. Beginning for Samuel 10. And Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his inheritance? Again, the Lord's permissive will, not his ideal will. But now as I read the rest of this, I want you to listen to the specificity of the details of what Samuel tells Saul. This isn't just reading some stupid horoscope that is so general that it's hard not to be fulfilled. This is, thus saith the Lord, working through Samuel. Samuel says to Saul, when you go for me today, then you're going to find two men, not one, not three, close to Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they are going to say to you, the donkeys which you were looking for have been found. They're not going to say, have a great day. They're going to say, those donkeys, yeah, don't worry about it. They have been found. Now behold, your father has ceased to be concerned about the donkeys and is anxious for you saying, what shall I do about my son? Remember, that was Saul's concern in our text last week. Hey, if we're out here so long looking for these silly donkeys, eventually my dad's not going to really give a rip about the donkeys anymore. He's going to start worrying about me. This is called prescience. This is Samuel knowing the future only because God is speaking through him and to him. Passage continues. Then you will go further from there. And you're going to come as far as the oak of Tabor. And there, three men, not one, not two, not four, but three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you. And one is going to be carrying three goats. Another is going to be carrying three loaves of bread. And another carrying a jug of wine. And if that isn't specific enough, they're going to greet you. And they're going to give you two loaves of bread. And if that isn't enough, you're going to accept those two loaves of bread from their hand. Afterward, you will come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it shall be as soon as you have come there to the city that you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre. They had their worship team with them before them. And they will be prophesying. And then the spirit of the Lord will come upon you, Saul, mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. Not meaning his visage changed, like all of a sudden he's not Saul, but he's, uh, you know, the aardvark man or something. Uh, or something, yeah, more torrid, you know, in our day and age. But meaning there's going to be this dynamic encounter with the power of God through the Spirit of God that is going to fundamentally change him at that time, in that moment. That's an important distinction. Hold on to that for a few seconds. 
It shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come to you and offer burnt offerings and sacrifice peace offerings. You shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him mightily so that he prophesied among them. And it came about when all who knew him previously, remember he was now a changed man for the moment, and they saw that he prophesied now with the prophets that the people said to another, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So whatever it was, it was so profound that people who otherwise knew Saul went, whoa, what the heck? Something supernatural has taken place here. And a man there said, now who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb. Is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Now Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And he said, oh, we were looking for donkeys, uncle. And when he saw that they couldn't be found, we went to Samuel. Now, here's what Saul's uncle says to him. This is kind of intriguing. Saul's uncle says to Saul, please tell me what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, well, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found but he didn't tell him about the matter of the kingdom, which Samuel had mentioned. The the matter of the kingdom? The fact that he'd been anointed king? He didn't mention that to his uncle? Okay, two points here. First of all, about this whole encounter with the Spirit of God and Saul being among the prophets now, for that moment at that time. The hugest fundamental difference between Old Testament and New Testament is that in the Old Testament, because God, Emmanuel, God with us, had not yet come, he had not lived, died, rose again, and ascended back into heaven, because that had not yet happened, the Holy Spirit of God was not disseminated like a blanket upon all the faithful and all who believe, to be with them, and to stay with them, and to live, in fact, with them forever. No, 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 no. In the Old Testament, God, at his whim and wish and prerogative would say, okay, I got a particularly uh, unique uh, uh, issue to take care of here, so I'm going to go here with this guy, and by the way, Holy Spirit, boom, go on him for this time and this job. And he is. And when the job is done, Holy Spirit gets taken away again. And that's the way the Holy Spirit works in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, however, once Jesus came and accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished and ascended back into heaven, now the Father sends the Holy Spirit to come, not intermittently on, a, on the people who believe in him now to do his bidding, but to come and abide and dwell and live with us, which is why Jesus speaks the way he does in the Gospel of John chapter 7. He says to the disciples, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water? What do you mean? But this he spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified, meaning taken up into heaven, having accomplished everything. Now, 
change of, of, uh, of time just by a little bit. A few chapters down, the book of John in chapter 16. Jesus now is speaking to a very discouraged bunch of his followers because they're just starting to finally put it together that, hey, Jesus says he's going away. He's leaving it. The master is leaving. And Jesus says to them, I am leaving. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper, the parakletos, the one called alongside of all names used of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I am going to send him to you. It'll be a carte blanche to now remain and abide with you for all time until you're with me again. Fundamental differences between Old and New Testament. Point two. Once again, Saul's silence about his coronation may reveal an understandable sense of bewilderment. We know from last week that he was in fact bewildered by his being chosen, but also probably reveals a very healthy sense of humility. Now think about this. If you were just told that you have been inaugurated, not just as king of a whole country, but it was the first time king ever, and you happen to run into one of your relatives, and he goes, so, hey, haven't seen you in a while. What's new? Oh, I got that uh, carpal tunnel thing off my wrist. Oh, well, good. You good? Yeah, I'm good. Have a good day. That's it. What did he tell his uncle? Oh, you know, we've been out looking for some donkeys and everything else. That's about it. Never said anything to him about being anointed as king over all of God's people. Continuing, therefore, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Realize that what the Lord is saying to the people yet once again, you had the king, but you demanded a king. You wanted a king who would look like a king who would go out and fight your battles. This was from last week. A king who by his very presence would put fear into your enemies because apparently I wasn't good enough. Rest of the passage. But you have today rejected your God who delivers you from all your calamities and your distresses. Yet you have said no, but set a king over us. Now, therefore, in light of that, Samuel says, go present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clan. What's going to happen here is by protocol, they are going to cast lots, which means basically to throw dice. Now, it's not dice, but... And why is that? Because again, they didn't have the Holy Spirit residing with them to have that mainline connection with God, to have the wisdom and the counsel of God right with them to make those hard kinds of decisions in life that we do have. And so when they are told to cast lots, when they are doing it in obedience to God, God is behind that. And he is stacking things so that those lots, in fact, are trustworthy and reliable and do reveal exactly what he wanted them to reveal. So they're calling, they're telling everybody to go back to their, where they come from and their tribes and all that. And they're going to cast lots. And by doing this, they're going to find out who the king again is supposed to be. It's like triple confirmation. They go from the tribe, they go to the family, and then they come down to the father. 
And now it again lands on Saul. So Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And then he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families and the Matrite family was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. You see, everything's working just the way the Lord wanted it to be to single out Saul. But when they looked for Saul, this is honestly kind of really funny. They couldn't find him. And so they go and they inquire of the Lord. Hey, uh, <clears throat> God, has that guy, <laughs> Saul, who the lots fell on to be our king, has he been here yet? And the Lord says to them, uh, yeah, you'll find him. What? Where? Why? Where? He's over there. Hiding. Hiding? Yeah, he's hiding. And our translations say baggage. More likely it meant, and this again is kind of ironic, military supplies. Okay, you see in this, I mean, boy, the Lord just puts things out there in ultra 4K HD or whatever it is. So they ran and they took him from his place of hiding. And now listen to this again. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any other people. From his shoulders upward. That's at least the fourth time that we have been reminded about Saul's physical appearance because that was the overriding desire of God's people to be their king. That he looked like a king and he was tall and he would put fear and trembling into the enemies. So where's our king that we can anoint him and applaud him? He's overriding in the military equipment supply house. Wouldn't you kind of go, hmm, now that is interesting. Our king, our leader is going to put fear into the enemies, is hiding? <laughs> Got to love God's sense of humor. When Samuel responds, I really have to wonder if he was speaking with sarcasm just dripping all over the front of his priestly garment. Samuel says to them, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? Peekaboo! We see you, Saul! Surely. Now here's the sarcasm. I, I could be wrong on this, but I'm thinking this is so, this is just, ah, oh, the sarcasm. You can just peel it off of Samuel. He says, Surely there's no one like him among all the people. Now, does he mean, Look at your king. Surely there's none like him above all among all the people. He's big and tall and strong. Or look at your king who's in hiding. Surely there's none like him among the people. <laughs> I could be wrong. I don't know. And how do the people reply? Oh Lord. We are so sorry. Can you reverse this thing? No, that's not what they said. They said, there he is. Come on, king. Come on. 
Come on, Saul. Your loyal subjects are waiting for you. Here he is. Long live the king. It's the inspired text. See, we have the advantage of all kinds of hindsight, right? Looking back and going, what a bunch of knuckleheads. But look in the mirror on those more minor issues of life. It is dumbfounding to me that the masses could be so blind to the obvious flaws. Listen to what I'm saying in a cultural context of today. It is dumbfounding to me that the masses could be so blind to the obvious flaws of the very one they were seeking to bring forth to acclaim as their new king. Is there anything new under the sun? Solomon says, nah. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom. Samuel wrote out uh, basically what they could expect from their king and what he would expect from them and all of that. He wrote it and put it in a book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. And Saul also went to his house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. The next part of this to me is intriguing. And I don't have a good explanation at this point. But certain worthless men. Remember that phrase? Talking about Eli's sons and what, dis- I mean, that, 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 uh, the Hebrew there for worthless men, it's not just like, eh, they're, they're kind of low rent kinds of people or whatever. No, they were scum of the earth is what that word means. And that's why this is intriguing to me. The valorous men go with Saul, honoring him as king, but certain worthless men say, are you kidding me? How can this one deliver us? And so they despised him and they didn't bring him any present. But Saul kept silent. See, that has to do with with customary protocol of honoring the king. It was a royal snub to for them not to bring a present to the king, but to despise him. And Saul, again, in great leadership fashion, does what? He keeps silent. In those days, you know what the king would have done? Yo, Bubba, get your sword. And it wasn't to put hot dogs on and have a weenie roast with the two worthless men. When we impose our will on God, we are in for a bad day. And our nation has been, has been imposing its godless will by incremental steps, by bits and pieces. Yes, through the ages, technically since the Garden of Eden onward, but in my lifetime, it's been palpably observable from the 1950s onward. Every heretofore presumed fiber of our social fabric has been getting eroded by the tide of the Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, which we're told in the New Testament that the spirit of Antichrist is with you now, even then. 
And like the frog in the kettle, it is imperceptible to an increasingly growing portion of the population of our country and really of the world. In the 1960s, which I grew up in and came of age in, so to speak, it was the age of free love. There's never been a costlier love in the world than that so-called free love and the whole new idea of challenging, questioning authority. The heck with tradition. The heck with with thousands of year old morals and values and mores. Question everything. Don't have to do anything you don't want to do. In the 70s, our national leaders found a constitutional right to kill babies. And that's only escalated to what we know in the last couple of years, that it's reverted to an absolute Stephen King novel, except it's not fiction. In the 80s, the juggernaut became in earnest for the normalization of homosexuality with the publishing of the book for elementary school called Heather Has Two Mommies, 1989. In the 90s, it brought in marriage for all, not meaning every man and woman who decides they would want to be married can be married. You know what I mean. Anyone and everyone can be married now. And then, as that wasn't enough, astoundingly, currently, we are now having supposedly serious argument and controversy over genetic and biological reality called gender. The handwriting is on the wall. You do know where that comes from. That comes right from the Bible. Many, many tekel you farsin. The Lord has weighed you in the balance and you've been found wanting. But oh, for the remnant. You see, the longer I am alive, the more I'm really beginning to get the sense of, of urgency because of what Jesus said when he said, the way is broad that leads to destruction. The gate is narrow that leads to life. And few there are who find it. Many are called, but few are chosen. You know today that in the church that wears Christ's name, universalism is a very large engulfing heresy. Universalism simply is that, you know what? At the end of the day, everybody's going to go to heaven because God is God of love. That's it. You don't need Jesus, you don't need that. Just everybody's going to heaven. God wouldn't send anybody to hell. And whereas I used to think, you know what? And I've had people ask me, so what percentage of people in the United States would you say are Christian? I'm like, I can't. I can tell you what the Pew, you know, organization says. And I can tell you what Barna says. Even then I said, I'm not buying that. I said, I have no idea. I'd be surprised if it's 10%. Truly, I would be surprised. 
But as you start thinking about this and you look at society and you look at culture and you look what's happening in churches and now, not just those liberal left-wing churches, but heretofore Bible-believing churches are already caving to the homosexual juggernaut in particular. Oh boy, I am done. Just lastly, I will say that two days ago I sent an email to the home office, the EFCA in Minneapolis. And I said, you know, we have to, every five years, and it just happened, we have to, we being, uh, if you're ordained with the EFCA, you have to re, re-sign and affirm the statement of faith and a bunch of questions about your walk and all of this stuff, you know, that you are abiding by this and all that kind of thing. That's great. But I sent them an e- email back and I said, what assurance do I have, do we have, that the EFCA is not going to cave in the name of whatever, being more tolerant, being more evangelistic, welcoming everybody for the sake of... I said, I understand, I get all that. But it's always on our part. And you see, good Bible-believing denominations, of which my brother is an elder in one of them, okay, in Indiana... Their church now is going through, not their church, their denomination is going through this big thing because West Coast churches are in fact now changing their policies and everything about who can be involved in the church. Not just, this church is welcome to everybody, okay? Don't misunderstand that. This church, I would love to see homosexuals and transgenders in here every week because they are going to hear the truth of what God's best for them is and how to get true joy out of life. We don't turn anybody away, although that's the rumors out there, of course, because of things like this. People only get a little snippet of it. No, I want those people. But it's an altogether different situation when you have two professing Christians who are also active homosexuals in a marital union, thriving and existing in an evangelical-believing, Bible-believing church. No, that is categorically inviting the judgment of God. Do you see the difference? So anyway, I've gone long enough. Let me have you stand. And I know, Paul, you were on tap. I'm going to close it out, though. Father in heaven, we are living in a day of urgency. And that urgency, Lord, is that even people who think, who are convinced because they've, I don't know, memorized a slogan or because they go to church a couple times a year or whatever, that that their eternity is all set and all fine. And yet if they were honest with themselves, they see that they have been completely enculturated into the way of the Philistines. They've adopted the values and the morals of the culture. And Father, I know that your heart, because you tell us, is that you desire that no one perish. Lord, give us that urgency and that sense of people we know, if they die tomorrow, will end up in a Christless eternity. And that is not your desire. So we pray, help us to be faithful, help help us to clean up our lives to the glory of your name. Amen.